0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 171 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on Manhattan's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most revered actresses of her generation, a five-time Oscar nominee who won Best Actress in 1996 for her portrayal of a nun who befriends a man on death row in Dead Man Walking, and a seven-time Emmy nominee who is nominated this year for Feud, Betty and Joan, both for Best Variety Series, as a producer of the FX hit, and Best Actress in a Limited Series or Movie, for her portrayal of Betty Davis on it, the one and only Susan Sarandon. Sarandon, who is a very youthful 70, has been in the business for 47 years. She stumbled into it quite by accident, never fully bought into it, but undeniably has made her mark on it. You know her from 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show, 1978's Pretty Baby, 1981's Atlantic City, 1983's The Hunger, 1988's Bull Durham, 1990's White Palace, 1991's Thelma and Louise, 1992's Lorenzo's Oil, 1994's The Client, the aforementioned Dead Man Walking, 1998's Stepmom, 2007's Enchanted, 2011's Jeff Who Lives at Home, 2015's The Meddler, and so many other memorable projects on the big screen. But, like many other actresses of her generation, she increasingly has found film work to be wanting as she's gotten older and has become more open to the idea of doing television, on which she's appeared in TV movies such as 2007's Bernard and Doris and 2010's You Don't Know Jack. But Sarandon had never participated in a limited series for television until Ryan Murphy came calling about Feud and convinced her to play Davis, a part she previously had been asked to play many times over the years, including by Davis herself, But always had feared and resisted. The result of her overcoming that anxiety and diving fully into the part is one of the most impressive performances of her career. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel in New York, Sarandon and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how she first started working as an actress and why it took her 10 years to accept that she actually was one, how she fought for and landed Bull Durham after she already was into her 40s, and the fact that many, maybe even most, of her greatest roles and performances have come after that age, what she makes of some of the questions and debates provoked by her most controversial projects, including Thelma and Louise and Dead Man Walking, what's at the root of her political outspokenness and whether she regrets any of the controversial positions that she took during the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, why she increasingly sees television rather than film as the place where older actresses can still find great opportunities, and at the same time why she has not yet watched Feud, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Susan, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We always begin with a very tough one. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living?
1: I was born in New York. I spent early early years in Queens. Mm-hmm. My dad started out as a band singer and then after when he came back after the war, He went into the early days of TV as a producer Mm -hmm. and stage manager, whatever, and actually designed one of the early studios on the West Side that I ended up doing a soap opera in. Oh, my God. And then he became, eventually worked for Ogilvy Mather Advertising and was a VP there, so he was a madman, Yeah, <laughs> which I really, after that series, made me wonder what was going on in his life. And my mom was, you know, worked at home. I'm the oldest of nine, so she, there was a lot going on, and there were other babies that didn't make it, and mm. so she was pregnant and holding down the fort, you know, for years and years and years. And so we moved eventually to New Jersey. Yeah. And I just saw the house, this little tract house my dad bought for $12,000, $12,500. Oh, wow.
0: You just went back to it?
1: No, I saw the advertisement some one of my I found I have gone back yeah. to see. We, I spent my childhood clearing rocks oh, from our from. yard <laughs> and so my dad could plant and it's all overgrown with trees and he put up a f- split level fence into the best he could and then eventually moved into a different house, but right. I went to Edison High School where I had 500 in my class. Oh, which was very different. Most of my, all my other siblings went to Catholic right. school. So this is where I went well, wrong, so I guess. Part of
0: the reason I imagine that there might have been nine children, this was a quite a religious, conservative, Catholic family. My mom.
1: I wouldn't say my dad. My okay. dad was agnostic. But my mom ended up in foster care and Catholic charities. And so she was raised and lived in a convent. Mm. And, and even when she graduated, lived in the convent with the nuns. And Taught and then met my dashing father between gigs on a train, and the rest is history.
0: So how do you think being one of nine and also being raised pretty observantly shaped you as a young person going out into the world?
1: Well, you know, as a Catholic girl, if you can believe in transubstantiation, you can believe in anything. (laughs) So maybe it... I think it wasn't the church as much. I was pretty serious about wanting to hold on to my faith when the communists came over, to kill us all, and I was shocked when I went to public school that the Jews weren't more apologetic for killing Christ, but (laughs) I think that it, you know, being the eldest in a large family probably shaped me more because I was a very shy kind of inward child and having to be grounded by all of this responsibility and kids and everything else. I think that set the pattern for taking care of every man who ever came into my life or, (laughs) you know, I'm not like most of my siblings, and my overly developed need for justice, I don't know where that came from.
0: Well, we're going to come to that. But
1: I, you know, certainly being Catholic, I always had a problem with original sin. And I remember being made to sit in the hallway in third grade because I said, well, if the only people that are really married are Catholic, (laughs) then... Howard, Joseph, and Mary married. If Jesus didn't make it up till later, so it <laughs> wasn't like that. that I was rebellious, but I definitely some of the logic of yeah. of that was lost on me.
0: Well, so you go off to Catholic University, and I think that I found it interesting. I guess you were majoring in drama, but you said, you know, obviously taking other, I guess, religious themed courses as well, and you said quote, the more I studied about the Bible and how it came about, the more I lost my faith, close quote.
1: Yeah, and it was also a very exciting time when all the nuns were running off with priests and things (laughs) the end of the 60s. Uh, Yeah, because when you you can't really take the Bible verbatim when it was written by so many guys over so many periods of time. And, And also, as I got older and I saw Catholicism really at work in Central America and South America where it was connected to people's welfare, and liberation theology, it just was ridiculous, some of the misogyny within the Catholic Church. And and I took a lot of philosophy comparative religions when I was mm-hmm. in college also. So yeah. I loved going to mass and the smoke and the Latin. It it lost something for me when everyone was playing guitars and singing, (laughs) you know, top forty hits. But, and then you meet someone like Sister Helen who has found a way to stay in the church and these other amazing religious people who are actually connected to doing good. And you know, I find her remarkable for that reason because nuns are definitely at the bottom of the food chain within the Catholic. But this pope's great. I like this pope. He's pretty good.
0: Yeah. So senior year you had been pursuing drama at at catholic university but it sounds like not with a mind to actually being an actress no
1: no no as an undergraduate at catholic u it's it's academic there's no it's not juilliard or anything (laughs) it wasn't but i met chris sarandon there and he uh, when i was 17 and he was six years older and he was a graduate student and he was doing all the shakespeare and i also didn't have a voice that was really Supposedly, right for anything.
0: You're it's, saying literally?
1: Well, I mean, that's what I was told. Was it, it wasn't always a deep? stage? No, it wasn't this. St- it was just not, you know, it wasn't a good voice for theater, which was mostly what they were interested mm-hmm. in. And I worked in the drama department. I had to work my way through college. Mm-hmm. And I ended up there because I was supposed to go to Emerson. Anyway, it's a long story, but I was living <laughs> with my grandparents. Okay. And, and so I didn't have to pay room and board, and I was working on the switchboard in the drama department, which was a lovely job, mm-hmm. and cleaning apartments and cutting hair, which I was not as good at. <laughs> and so it, it was a very friendly, you know, for somebody that didn't have a regular college life. It was it was nice. But then Chris Sarandon and I started sleeping together a few years after that, and I just wanted to be out of my grandparents. And so marriage, you couldn't really <laughs> live with someone in those days. Right, and so we good. got married with right. kind of the idea that would, we would renew it every year. And then at a certain point, we didn't. Well,
0: because even so, even then, and even in spite of this pretty conservative upbringing, you had your questions about the whole institution of marriage and seeing that it would be con- it could be constraining or whatever, right?
1: Yeah, I just, I don't know why it never interested me. It, I like the idea of having to commit not based on an agreement in the eyes of, of the nation and, you know, all of that. And trying to keep it fresh, which, of course, once you have children in real estate, you fall prey to the same yeah. constraints that a marriage, you, you might as well be married. But philosophically, I just, I don't know, I just wasn't, it just wasn't my thing. I had no problem with anyone else.
0: Okay, so shortly after you two got married, which I think was during your senior year.
1: The begin right before my senior right year. Right before
0: your senior year. Take me through, if you can, these series of events that actually I guess brought you along the way through my hometown of New Haven, where yeah. we have the theater, you know, some good theater. Mm-hmm. And then into your first movie. Because yeah. it's pretty it's a pretty unlikely serendipitous, yeah, serendipitous series of events. Yeah.
1: Chris Sarandon got a job at Long Wharf Theater doing Indian Wants the Bronx, which was an Al Pacino original, which was interesting because then he went on to do Dog Day Afternoon with Al. And so we were in New Haven and I was doing some modeling or just trying to pay my school debt off. And someone saw him and Jane Oliver saw him, who was a manager. And the only other people she handled were Sylvester Stallone before he did Rocky and Perry King. And she asked him to come into New York and audition for her. And he needed someone to do a scene with him. Mm -hmm. So I went and I did a little scene. And she said, well, why don't you come in also? And Chris had a job doing summer stock that summer. So after that, we went to New York. And within the first week of being there, he got a role in the Broadway musical, The Rothschilds, Mm -hmm. and I went up for a film called Joe. And they'd been trying to cast this part. It was the first non-pornographic film that this company had done. (laughs) It was a low-budget film, and John Alvitson, even though he wasn't in the Directors Guild at that time, was going to be directing it. And I went, and they asked me to do an improv, and they explained what that was, and I did it. And we talked for a bit, and he said, okay. And they left the room, and they came back, and they said, all right, we'd like you to do this movie. And I called Jane, and she said, don't do anything. Just come back. <laughs> and so I did this film, Joe. And when I did it, one of the very first things I did was under the influence of some non-specific drug, <laughs> on 14th Street, I trashed a store. <laughs> and, of course, it was one take because this was a low-budget film, and right. I just went around... Crazily drawing on my face with lipstick and knocking everything off the shelves, right. and I thought, well, this is so much fun. <laughs> so suddenly, you're uh, open to the s- idea of being. Yeah, actress. so then I just kept getting work. I think because I didn't. Well, that became a big hit, a sleeper hit, because it was everybody's nightmare. This girl from a nice family hooking up with a hippie, and <laughs> you know, eventually. And thanks to Peter Boyle's contribution, which he wasn't even originally. Cast And he brought with him that whole character of Joe from Second City. Mm -hmm. And during the editing process, there was a riot on Wall Street. And these construction workers beat the shit out of a hippie. And that became, you know, Silent America, Middle America. They became an actual thing. So they very smartly re-edited it about joe wow. and called it joe and then it was called the easy rider of its yeah year like a year be-
0: later after easy rider yeah, because
1: it was a low budget hit and then i also i got on a soap opera mm-hmm. and that's when i kind of started to learn how to act and how to work with equipment and and then i got some more th- and i just kept working
0: well you said quote i had been working for 10 years before i even admitted i was an actress Close quote in the middle of that period i guess you and chris got divorced. What happened along the way that, why did you not accept that you were an actress for so long? And then at what point did you?
1: I guess I just, after earning a living that way for a while, I thought, (laughs) well, this is what I'm doing, you know? And I guess because of that evolutionary process, I never saw it as an end. I always saw it as a means. And to this day, I Still am very grateful and very happy to have it as my job. It fights against my own natural inertia (laughs) and keeps me meeting people and and infiltrating microcosms that I wouldn't know anything about and gives me uh, access to collaboration, which I love. It's also given me the ability to give information to people that they aren't getting, and so... In doing that, I always felt that I used it rather than being used by it, which is a very easy thing to feel bitter about. So 50 years later, (laughs) I can say I'm not an alcoholic and I'm not bitter and I still love to work. That's great. So as long as I'm still finding challenges and, you know, don't mind doing supporting parts or characters that are unlike me and get a chance to do that, then I'm, you know, it's served me so well.
0: Well, one question that I have, because you say it's been decades now, but yet never, not after Joe, when you were probably being encouraged to go to LA, not in the years since, you've never lived in LA. Why is that? It seems like that might be a strategic, thought out decision.
1: Well, in the beginning I didn't have much of a sense of humor about Los Angeles. It just <laughs> seemed so even then so corporate. You know, I was used to dealing one-on-one with people. I had gotten a lot of jobs in New York. I I think the first time I actually went to LA was when I was doing front page. Right. I was just appalled that you know by the it just seemed so impersonal, <laughs> you, you know, and the isolation of it, the lack of serendipity that you have in New York—I just didn't really get it. Now, of course, I think it's really funny, and I one of my kids lives out there, and and I, you know, certainly the traffic is worse, but <laughs> I'm not as judgmental. Right. But I just didn't feel like myself in New York. There's so many different jobs, and it's not. L. A. is just all about the business, maybe the music business, but all about the business. So, I felt so self-conscious there. I felt you know, that if I went to the market and I wasn't made up, I would be losing work. And, (laughs) and, you know, I just can bum around New York and... And even though it's a big city, it helps to keep perspective because you're just all squished together here. And it has, I find, more of a sense of humor. Certainly, it's been easier to age here, I think. It's been easier to keep perspective, really, to stay grounded here. And also, I didn't want to raise my kids in L.A. I didn't want them isolated and Mm -hmm. with other rich, privileged kids. (laughs) I wanted them to understand that they were privileged. Right. And I wanted them to be around all kinds of families and all kinds of languages. And I wouldn't have known how to raise kids in LA. Yeah. So I really was insistent upon that yeah. here.
0: What I hope we can do is go through some of the roles that people know and love you for from those early days in the 70s through today. And just a few questions about, you know, some of the big ones, if we can. Let's start with Janet in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, 75. I guess this is the first one that in some ways became immortal, like people are still going to these midnight screenings and dressing up and singing and all this stuff. And I just wonder for you, how did it come about? And I mean, I could see at the time it seeming like a weird offer.
1: Oh, yeah. Nobody was behind that (laughs) choice. I was lucky enough to know Tim Curry because some friend of mine was in the stage show in L.A. Everyone loved him. And so one day I heard he was in town casting something. I was already supposed to do a different film. I, I mean, my film career was already going. Yeah. But I went by just to say hi, really. And Tim said, oh, my God, you have to read for this because we can't find Janet. You know, nobody's funny. And I said, yeah, but I can't sing. I actually have a phobia about singing. I really can't. <laughs> and he said, well, just read it. So I read it. And I and it was funny. And then they said, well, can you sing Happy Birthday? Just hit this note. Can you do this? Can you do that? And I thought, you know, it is so stupid. As a child growing up, I was always told I couldn't sing. And I became very self-conscious about it, especially since my dad was a singer. And coming to New York, I had had to audition for musicals and things. And I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't even breathe. I was so terrified. And I thought, that is such ego, you know. This is just... Everyone can hum. (laughs) And I thought when I got there, they'd give me alcohol or drugs or something (laughs) that would help me get over this ego problem. So I thought, what the hell? You know, why not? And, of course, it was no money, and it was a first-time director in a film, and everybody else had done the show except for Barry Bostwick and I, and Barry Bostwick had done leads and musicals, so he was much more at home. So anyway, I went and... They didn't give me alcohol or drugs. (laughs) And I did eventually get through the singing. And, of course, when they, I don't think it was even released, it was so badly reviewed in L.A. that it just was hidden. And then years later it was fed to gay cinemas and to art cinemas, and then it started getting this cult following. Can you
0: believe it? I mean, when you were doing it, you wouldn't have ever imagined. No, no,
1: no, no. And also it was a hard shoot. It was an hour out of London and it was freezing. And one of the sets that we were using was this old house that didn't even have a roof. So it was (laughs) raining on us and cold. And it was a hard shoot. I got pneumonia and then it kind of just disappeared. Everybody worked really hard. Tim was still brilliant in it. All the gals, everybody was so good in it. And then it Turned, and I think it Don't Dream It, Be It is the reason, you mm-hmm. know, and I stand behind that as mm-hmm. a great motto. And it's so funny because that going into Thelma and Louise, I got all of this mail saying, when I saw the Rocky Horror Show, I felt liberated. When I saw Thelma and Louise, I left town. Wow. wow. So there's some kind of connection yeah. between the two of them. That's very interesting. And, and, of course, all these kids that were sneaking out at midnight, I was <laughs> ter- I was getting hate mail from parents. <laughs> telling me to tell their kids (laughs) that they weren't going to get any money (laughs) in college if they took that underwear with them. But I think that the spirit of it, it, it's amazing that it's still around. Of course you couldn't anticipate that.
0: So not long after that, we're almost back to back. I don't know if maybe there was something in between, but your Louis Mal movies, Pretty Baby, and Atlantic City. So chronologically, how did this work? Because I know you've spoken about the fact you – were involved with him, but was it before
1: or during, or how did this... No, during Pretty Baby, we became involved. And then he came to me, had this project. I was shooting another film, and he wanted to do Atlantic City, and I suggested he talk to John Guare, who was a friend, because it really needed to be rewritten, and it was and the money had to be spent. It was Canadian money, so it was a Canadian DP and Canadian crew, and the money had to be spent by January 1st, so I went straight into that without the script even being finished. And it was John's brilliant idea to put it in Atlantic City, which at that time was morphing so fast that we couldn't even reshoot anything because things would be torn down. So that was the stroke of genius was the, you know, that and of course, Bert taking that leap to actually seem like an older guy. But we didn't even have an ending when we started filming.
0: So, pretty baby though was two years earlier, right? And then I don't have the the chronology of it. It was earlier, but I don't know
1: exactly when. But when I went to do pretty baby, we were in Louisiana, in New Orleans, which I adore that Mm -hmm. city. Every film I've ever shot there has been so special, and nobody knew who Louis Malle was, nobody knew who Sven Nyquist was, and the whole crew was. Drunk almost all the time. It's the only time I've worked on a set where in the cooler are beer. And they were fighting, putting lights in. It was crazy, you know. It was Brooke Shields, and there were problems there with them. Just a a very, very strange series of events. And then they started seeing dailies because, of course, we were using film at that time. Mm. And then they backed off, stopped putting extra lights in and stuff. Became more supportive of Sven and right. Louie when the, when they saw. I but saw they it. were a crew that had been doing like B movies up <laughs> until then and racing movies, whatever, and they didn't have any idea what was coming down wow. at that time. So that was a real sleeper, also, and then was so disturbing that it almost got an X rating.
0: Even though you don't really you show don't anything. Ever see anything.
1: Yeah. I know. It was just, I think, the fact that this kid was not a victim. Right. Right, that and, scary to people. And everyone else around her that were yeah. adults were the ones that were messed up. Right. And and that's somehow, you know, and that's what Louis brought to it. It was definitely a European point of view because a lot of his best films were from the point of view of like a 10-year-old girl.
0: Yeah. Well, just one follow-up on Atlantic City. Everything I've read, I've tried to find interviews going back to the beginning with you. I've gone through a lot. You... Are not somebody who's shy. If you have a, a thought or an opinion on a set, right, you will share that with the director. I wonder what you made of the initial idea that, and and how it all came to fruition. That you know what, let's pull out some lemons here in Atlantic City. Was that something you were on board with immediately? Because it's now that's going to be I know and, and you're real forever
1: and like ridiculous. <laughs> no, but what I mean you it was be a doing <laughs> with lemons on your breath. <laughs> Well, you don't actually see much in that scene. I mean, you feel like you see that she's naked. I think that I had to learn how to deal and everything else. I didn't have a a problem with that. What was interesting was this idea that she gives herself to Bert. Bert was not comfortable with that. He wanted to take me at like, you know, he said, I feel that you know, my public expects me to take right. you. And and Louis was not one to talk to actors all the time. And he left me the problem of trying to convince Bert that I give myself to him. And that whole monologue that he did that worked so effectively, in, to Bert's credit, you know, he had to give up certain ideas of, of who he was at that time. Mm -hmm. And Louis would do a very tricky thing of starting to film before he told actors and continue to film once he'd said cut and uh, trying to get him more off guard. But it was a big leap for Lancaster at that time. And I, I thought, you know, he definitely thought, what's this, (laughs) <laughs> this you know, girlfriend of the director, who right. is she, and <laughs> what is this about? So I didn't have a problem with that. There were some scenes to me that I couldn't figure out, and Louis cut them and always said, you know, whenever you take out a cigarette, that means there's something wrong with the scene. I mean, in the scene, yeah, smoke yeah, t- with a cigarette. And so there were some things that we cut because I couldn't figure out what was supposed to be really happening in them. But, no, I didn't have problems with the voyeuristic point of that was in the original story. But he, you know, everything, John changed everything. There was actually a lawsuit about getting co-credit that he won because he had changed so much wow. in it.
0: So another one where I think you spoke up from what I've read and another kind of sensual uh, scene just like a few years later, this was The Hunger. I think people don't remember, this was Tony Scott's first
1: movie. That's right, movie. yeah. He was great, by the way. He was I'm a love, just that. such a love.
0: Well, so that one, it's you and Catherine Deneuve, and the approach to the scene that, and the hunger that you probably get asked about the most, you put your foot down about that one, right?
1: Well, it was more that nobody, you know, it was kind of written as a montage kind of like something you'd see in Playboy or something. <laughs> and and I didn't have any problem with the actual sex, but you when you do a sex scene, you have to approach it as a scene. And for me, the most interesting thing is the before and after. How do you get into bed? Same with White Palace. What happens that gets you there? Everybody knows the middle. <laughs> and then what happens at the end? What's their attitude at the end? And the scene existed because at that point she's changing me, you know, so everybody knew that. But how do they get in bed? And I and I just said, you know, it was written that I was just insanely drunk and then you kind of see us in bed, but I said it's so much more interesting if she goes willingly. So what is the first touch? What is the first kiss? How does that happen? And the idea of spilling on my shirt and then having her off or something and and then the first kiss, you know, I thought was a lot more interesting than just, cut to there all over each other and then you know the changing i my head was on some kind of a cement mixer and they didn't even use that much of it and and Catherine was actually the one that put her foot down because after a while i was slurring my words and I, something <laughs> was going on with my brain but it was a scene that took three or four days and in the beginning Everyone was watching, and by the end, they couldn't have been more bored. <laughs> so, you know, they were clearing people out of the rafters right. in the beginning, and then by the end, it was like, okay, it was, you yeah. know, it's not that interesting. But we played David's cover of Wild as the Wind, oh, you yeah? know, is that what it's called? The the He has this very yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. cover, so he was kind of there with us Helpful, yeah. when we were rolling all over each other.
0: <laughs> well, it's interesting though that. I guess Tony might have been the first example, but you've worked with a lot of first-time
1: directors,
0: and that can go very well, or it can go, I guess, very not well. What's the thought process behind that? I I remember the one prior time I'd Interview. It was sort of like more of a Q and A with the collaborators. Was Jeff who lives at home, which I think was the maybe the Duplass's first or or, or very early movie it was for an them. Early, yeah. But like I'm sure for a early direct, you know, director early in their career, it's like hitting the well, jackpot Igby, to work. Igby with you. goes down yeah.
1: as, a, as a bull Durham first time. Yeah. Been, you know, I find I think you're second film is you're in more trouble because the first film they've been dreaming about for right. so long and right. they're so passionate about and and God bless Kevin Costner that made it possible for Ron to direct that film because they were not going to let him. And they they didn't even want Tim or I. So it was Kevin who pulled that one together and he was the position of power. And I think that, you know, of course it depends on the person because sometimes they don't listen yeah. to these seasoned directors. Actors that are there that ha, you know that want to collaborate, and it depends on the script. If the script's in shape, if the script's not in shape, then it's a problem. I've had some disastrous <laughs> first-time directors, but then some really good ones. And you know, you just have to take a chance, yeah, I a guess. Gamble. And it also depends on who the other people are, who the DP is, because the DP can help quite a bit and make all the difference. But sometimes they're so they've studied a lot of films. You're in trouble when they say, yeah, but you know, Scorsese in this film did, it. and you're like, yeah, but that's we're not in that right. film. And Don't you think it's interesting, the two of us together, right. not like close-ups? Well, you know, I saw this other shot. So you want to work from the, st- you want a good storyteller, right. and that's important.
0: Well, you mentioned Bill Durham, and it seems like your first really starring role in a movie, you've said, was compromising positions which I think Mm. was like 85. But then a few years later, you're already at that point, I guess past the age of 40 when supposedly things are not going to get easier. And meanwhile, most of your great roles were still to come. But here's what New York Magazine said in a profile, quote, Throughout the 70s and early 80s, she continued to specialize in such erotic rule breakers as a lesbian vampire victim and a New Orleans prostitute, squeezing lemons on her breasts, giving a morning blowjob to James Spader, a thinking person sex bomb, close quote. And then Bull Durham comes along. And that's one where you said you think it's the best script you ever read and that it really was a turning point. So how did that enter the picture and why did you have to really fight for
1: that one? What Ron did was write a script that from a place that he knew very much about and his love of women and combined with his experience in baseball, but also taking every cliché, you know, the guys start fighting and she just walks away. (laughs) She doesn't like, uh, you know, every romantic cliché, and he made this character that was so wonderful. And Ron wanted to hear the script read with Kevin, and the women that they really were interested in all refused. He wanted
0: the audition just what for chemistry purposes. Yeah,
1: for chemistry and to hear whatever, and that was his bottom line. And the women that they really wanted, that were on the list,
0: would not audition. Wouldn't do it.
1: (laughs) And I was in living in Italy at that time. My daughter was two, Mm -hmm. and we were actually living somewhere where there wasn't even a phone. And I got this script, and you know it was so good it the character was just so funny and a lot of the women that were really sexy couldn't deal with that much dialogue or whatever the problem mm-hmm. was but they wouldn't read and i flew paid my own way out and left my child behind and came in and out really quickly and read the entire Script with Kevin. Were you a
0: little annoyed that you even had to? Because by now you're on the map. Oh, yeah, I was
1: definitely on the map. I had done Witches of Eastwick. I'd done a a lot of things that had made money. Yeah, it it bruised my ego, but then I had to really talk myself out of that again and just say, but this is such a good part. And Kevin was so hot. (laughs) And it was worth doing. And I understood. And it ended up paying off. But It was expensive. It was an expensive audition, and I had the whole trip to talk myself into it. (laughs) You know, I I was treated for the first time with so much respect Mm -hmm. by Ron. And my bigoted view, I thought, I'm going to be in this locker room with all these jocks. This is going to be ridiculous. And, And instead, it was really a turning point for me because Kevin again you know was such a team player he recognized and he went on to be an amazing director Mm -hmm. but he knew how to give the stage to tim when it was his Mm -hmm. turn he knew how to give me my share and so it was a really wonderful collaboration and ron really listened i said to him listen just tell me faster slower you know who's Mm -hmm. pitching who's catching in the scene you don't have to motivate me I don't care what beetle <laughs> she loved in high right. school, you know. Right. And so hardly any of the script was changed. There was one major, major thing that that was changed. But the rest of it was just me weighing in on how she, what she was wearing and, you know, what her place was like and, you know, all of that kind of thing. So we felt like we were collaborating. Well,
0: and you, just to read back one other quote. I just never seen a woman on screen that was that sexual and that smart and allowed to live at the end of the film. Yeah, which is true. Normally, I guess you're you have to pay for it. Yeah, you're
1: punished. That's right. No, that was a big deal. He he was amazing, and and they also were undermining him the whole time. So it was a who was the studio? Yeah. You know, they fired his DP without telling him right away, almost, Jesus. and so he found out at lunch Jeez. one day, and a new guy was there. And so stuff like that was happening. And then they were cutting scenes at the end. And he had filmed all the baseball stuff first, thinking they'll never cut scenes. Right. And they were like, no, 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 we're going to cut this stuff. So Kevin had to fight again Mm -hmm. to keep some of the the sex montage in and to keep some of our scenes in. And then they ended up having this big hit.
0: And this was your first Crossing Paths with Tim Robbins?
1: Yes, yes. So that well. was a bonus there. Yeah. <laughs> Two boys came out of that movie. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay, so speaking of the the sort of gender politics stuff that leads us right into Thelma and Louise just shortly after, what was it that got you to sign up for and and do that one? Because it was a pretty radical, I mean, it's still, I guess, a pretty radical yeah, film. Yeah, but we
1: didn't think of it as radical. This is what's so hilarious. It was like a cowboy movie with women and trucks and cars instead of horses and guys. And I think we really, and so it seemed like it would be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. When I met with Ridley, who obviously was an amazing filmmaker, it wasn't even clear what part, you know, he was like, well, which one do you feel? And I said, look, the only thing I'm asking is, am I going to die at the end? Because I don't want to do this and test it and then have you completely change it. And that was Al- a big
0: draw for you was the Yeah,
1: actress. and, well, I didn't want to be in it and lead to this point because there was a lot of comedy and everything, right. but then, you know, here's a woman who's been raped, and it, I said, I'm not interested in making a film about revenge. I'm, I think this woman is trying to get some answers as to why men feel that that's a good idea to be doing these things. I think she's asking questions, but she obviously... To make it different than an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, she has to pay for Mm -hmm. taking that life. So if she's not going to die at the end, she feels bad about killing somebody. She's haunted by that. She's not... In the script, it said they blow up the truck and they jump up and down and that she assassinates this person like a police person. And I said, that doesn't ring true to me. I think she just wants to shut him up when she shoots him. She just gets into this other mode. And so... I'm not gonna do it as if she's a vigilante. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in making a movie about a female. I think as a female, she has to be different. So that was the only really important thing to me. And he said, listen, you will definitely die. I don't know about her. (laughs) You may push her out of the car at the end. And so by the time we got to the end, I think we'd earned, we took actually a lot of dialogue out of the very end and put it over a car chase because by that time they were so bonded. And we shot that the very last day. And I said, I want to grab her and kiss her. And he said, go for it. We only had like one take because it was magic hour. And of course, he shot the helicopters and everything else first and Harvey. And so we just had that.
0: I got to ask you just a quick follow up about the ending, because I don't I'm sure you are aware of this, but I took like a couple of women's studies classes in college. I know it's all over the place. This is dissected. And PhDs and things are written about this. I guess, A, generally, what do you make of the fact that it's so thought over like this? But specifically, what to you does that ending signify beyond you're saying, like, yes, she has to to now pay because of what she's done. But for you, why does that ending rock people so much?
1: Well, I don't think it's the ending. I think it's the context. Because actually, why did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid not Mm -hmm. get that kind of, Feedback because I don't know if you remember, but it got a lot of backlash mm-hmm. that we were condoning suicide and this was violence against men. And when you look at films, mm-hmm. Mel Gibson films or Schwarzenegger films, or you know how many people they kill, and mm-hmm. this is your divorce, and you get hit, you know, you get murdered. I, I mean, it was outrageous that this film, and we didn't anticipate it really. You did again. We didn't make it as some kind of liberation thing you know not at all I mean it was just that giving women the option of violence and making them having in a way this romantic ending this uncompromising ending and he put us in an iconic scenery it could have been a little tiny film of someone else but Ridley put us him and his merry band of men who were going around the desert I mean Gina and I laughed and said it was going to end up being a voiceover because they were always shooting these incredible vistas right. and sunsets and sunrises right. and he made it iconic in in that he put us in this context and then the way he filmed the ending was genius but the music and the way the music went it had been my idea to do the Polaroid that wasn't in the script and because I felt that and it, some of it was cut but she kept scrapbooks that she She was very anal in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Her hairdo, her apartment, she cleans everything when she leaves it. She's trying to control her life because of the rape. She's trying to... So she takes a lot of these pictures and she puts them in books. So we got this Polaroid, the first selfie, mm-hmm. yeah, and right. <laughs> did this thing, which he then revisited at the end, which wasn't my idea. That was his right. idea. But that wasn't in the script. And so he made the ending a liberating kind of ending and an up ending, which is hard to do when people drive off a cliff. Yeah. But we didn't anticipate that it would cause that much of a furor. That we had backed into this white heterosexual male area of filmmaking, and and so everyone thought this heralded in a huge change in women's films, which right. it didn't.
0: Yeah, that because not a, not a lot has.
1: Well, you've got this army of comedians, I think, that have changed things That's the that main can thing. make green light films that cost a lot of money and, right. and make a lot of money. I think that's been a huge change. That's interesting.
0: You know, chugging along here, just the the next few years there, I guess you got back with George Miller having done Witches of Eastwick before. Now you're doing Lorenzo's Oil, which I think sounds like it was a happier experience than Witches. Then you do... Well,
1: but, Michelle Pfeiffer was supposed to do it, and she backed out.
0: So it was, it was just a free... And what was there.
1: strange was that my daughter's father, an Italian director... Mm-hmm had interviewed the Adonis. And I ran into George on a plane where he had just visited the Adonis yeah. right as Michelle was pulling out of it. Right. And I said to him, look, I have all these interviews because five years ago, my baby daddy <laughs> wanted to make that film and couldn't get it financed. Right. So I had interviews <laughs> right. that took place when the film actually yeah. was taking place. Now it was history. And he's so crazy, George, that he was interested in it because of the medical. He was interested in it because of the science. Yeah. So and then he asked me if I would do it, but it it originally was Michelle. So that's funny. Yeah.
0: So there was Lorenzo's oil, then there was the client, which I guess you were literally begged to do by Joel Schumacher as I understand (laughs) it. And then while that was being made from, from what I read, this was when you first crossed paths with sister. Helen, which is interesting because here you are from everything you've said, I think like kind of having moved pretty far away from the real, really Catholic upbringing. And yet you meet this woman and and it.
1: Well, I read her book and then I asked to meet her in New Orleans and she called, you know, the various political people that she was working with because she didn't know which one I was, Thelma or Louise. (laughs) And she wanted a recommendation. And the amnesty people and the ACLU people said, oh, no, that I was was reputable. And so we (laughs) met for dinner, a great dinner, where we killed thousands of crawfish. (laughs) And on a handshake, she gave me the book. Wow.
0: How would you even come to want to read the book?
1: Uh, Arlene Donovan, an agent at ICM, and I'd read reviews of the book, and so we we were fast friends then. And Tim took a little while to write to get behind it. He wanted to do something else, and I finally had like a nervous breakdown on Seventh Avenue and just said, "Well, then I'm going to take it to somebody else if you <laughs> want look at it seriously." Right. And and then it kind of got in his imagination, and he wrote a brilliant script. And
0: yeah, it was great. And and I think just to remind people from what I've read, you, I guess you put on some way for that part. You definitely. The glamour, you know, yeah. a little bit, no makeup or whatever. And the, true, you saw went to actual executions before the doing. Well, it?
1: we were filming in Angola when there was an execution, and we had a vigil outside. I I have been asked to because I had a correspondence with people in prison way before that. I already had lots of people that were writing to me from. Why was that? Up. Who knows? But they were writing to me, and I was corresponding. With people, so you know, I was aware, and certainly not in the way that I was once yeah, I yeah. actually knew Sister Helen. And but we were in Angola when someone was executed who was from New York actually, and who shouldn't have been executed mm-hmm. anyway. I won't go into the details you of that, were present? but we had a vigil outside. Yeah, the, I see, I see. Not I see. watching right, it, right, right. But we ran into one of the sets of parents that's mentioned in in the book, who continued to go to executions and have like tailgate parties every time there was an execution whose entire lives, even though their person had been executed 10 years before, continued to be part of this execution thing. So it wow. just goes to show you that it does not give closure. No. And we were very present in the neighborhoods that Sister Helen worked in in the projects there because we felt it was very important to be connected to that neighborhood. So we hired a lot of people from there. and.
0: Well, many, many couples have made movies together. Usually, I think it's fair to say they do not turn out well for whatever reason. I don't know if people are not being honest. They don't want to be honest with each other about things or whatever. But this one obviously is an exception. So what? Is there a, a secret to doing it right?
1: There were many ups and downs. Yeah, let me tell you, yeah. <laughs> there are many. I actually left the project at one point because I, I do a lot of, it's very hard to write. You know, you're so vulnerable as a writer. But I definitely try to get the script as close as possible and, it was very hard and you know to take this book which dealt with two people and dealt with electrocution and to try to find a way to present it it was very important i felt to show the sister helen was brought she didn't come in trying to change the death penalty she was drawn in one thing after another after another another until she found herself at her first execution but she it didn't you know she yeah. was a reluctant Person and I think all of these heroes, these women that I play, are reluctant, are vulnerable. They're not people that come in with guns blazing. And
0: rhyme or reason to that is that
1: first of all, it's more accurate, and secondly, of all, it's more interesting. You know, they're not they're ordinary people who end up in extraordinary situations, but it costs them, and that's a much more interesting story than just coming in with you know, now I'm gonna change the death penalty. I mean it, it to be there when someone's being executed in cold blood, you cannot get your head around it. It is the most insane thing that no other industrial nation does but us. And I had always been against the death penalty, but you know, I think what Dead Man Walking did was show you really the specifics so that no matter where you stood, you had to know now really what happens. No one had dealt with that yet. And so it made me even more against the death penalty for even more reasons. Mm-hmm. But to actually see it at work was extraordinary.
0: I have just found it so funny reading some of your interviews about that where you've said, quote, Sister Helen was very difficult to play because basically she just goes around saying, I'm so sorry, let's pray. <laughs> Close quote. And yet in the end, that's the part that you finally win an Oscar for. So what did you just make of that whole thing, especially coming, I think, three years after you and Tim had gone and spoken out on the Oscars telecast about, I think, Haitians in Guantanamo Bay or something in a way that
1: God, Did band. not endear
0: you to the Academy. Yeah, we were banned <laughs> right. from the Academy.
1: Well, certainly if there was, I was nominated five times, and if there was one that I would prefer to be have the team trophy for, yeah. it was Dead Man Walking mm-hmm. having produced it and developed it mm-hmm. and so connected with Sister Helen. I don't know. Maybe people were just like, finally, just give it to her. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think Sean deserved it, and it was great that there were five nominations. The script was great. It's always great to win. You get to show the bottom half of your dress. You know, <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne leaned over right when they were getting ready to announce it and said, if you don't win this time, we're burning this place down. <laughs> so maybe they were just like, it was a cumulative effect. Right. I, it, it was very moving to me to see everyone stand up. I, you know, awards are so subjective and now have so much to do with the economics yeah. of who can take everybody to festivals and do all these luncheons and have all the screeners. So, you know, you realize that. You realize that there's so many performances that don't get recognized. So it's, you can't delude yourself into thinking that you are the best actress this year. But what it does do is maybe give your career a little bit more longevity. And it certainly helps to have people see a movie like Moonlight that, Is a little movie, you know, maybe it it, it helps prolong the life of a movie. And it's definitely easier than being a five time loser (laughs) when they introduce you and they can say, a Cannes Academy Award winner. It's
0: kind of nice. You know, it's it's very
1: helpful for that. It's a nice club to be in. But you do realize that. So much of it has to do with timing. Great. And there's so many people who win Academy Awards not for the movie that you think they should have, mm-hmm. but have been around forever. And there's so many great actors who haven't won. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you keep all that in mind. But I was happy the Sister Helen was in the audience and that yeah, it was cool. for that one. She's that she's still struggled turning with. out books oh, and stuff, Oh, yeah, right? yeah. She, we're, well, we just, you know, really worked to keep this guy from getting executed recently. And she's still, no, she's still... chugging away. I don't know how, but she doesn't.
0: Well, it's been in the the 21 years since you won that Oscar and between that and now being up for this Emmy, one of the major things that seems to have changed is the way that film stars, people who establish themselves as stars in film first, like you, regard television. Because even 21 years ago, it was, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but seen as a step in the wrong direction to be going to you know going and lowering yourself to do something on TV right right so when when did that change in your view
1: well I think it's been the platforms and the roles that are being offered to women it's it's not necessary I mean when I did Bernard and Doris mm-hmm. which was a huge hit eventually on HBO and they decided to not release it as a film and not and but to release it on HBO I have to say I was like a I thought oh really but it ended up being seen by so many more people and they could actually put money behind it. There's no point in doing a film unless, it's, you know, and releasing it. That's happened to me where the Duplass Brothers yeah. is a great example Jeff with Jeff Who Lives at Home that got great reviews and the studio just dumped it or the one I did with Natalie Portman, anyone, yeah. anywhere. But here yeah. was a great little film that, that she did and Wayne Wang. And, you know, so if you don't have a studio that's ready to get behind you, it's much better for it to be released on a different platform where people can find it. Mm-hmm. And also the roles, you know, they're just, uh, studios are not, they're all still pairing up older guys with 30-year-old yeah. women they're married to. The Medler was a great part for me, but, yeah. I, you know, you don't find those parts at a certain age. It's hard to find lead parts. So,
0: Have you found that, honestly, like that it's, I mean, I guess nobody's uh, immune to it where that, It wasn't at 40 for you in the way that it supposedly is for most people. But you have you you've joked about like I've suddenly been dying in a lot more movies or mothers or grandmothers became or became grandmothers or whatever. Like, has it really also been that because it seems like so many of the greatest actresses who have been doing it for a while now just gravitate towards TV because that's where maybe the mid range budget movies that no longer get made the closest equivalent is TV.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also because they're not looking for a a wide demographic. They can be edgy. They can be controversial. You can curse. You can be naked. You can be a lead at 60 or whatever. You know, they're looking to tell stories, and they don't have to appeal to everybody. But these studio executives that make, you know, these big budget, I think they're just mostly going to be selling these – extravaganzas because Mm -hmm. they don't know what to do with they have a certain way of releasing things maybe four different modes and if Jeff who lives at home comes out they don't know how to sell that and they're way behind also in terms of how to use the internet and how to use some of the but when you go to these other platforms they can be edgier they can be more interesting they don't have to appeal to everybody, You know, Ryan Murphy can sells, right. sell this with two older actors in the leads in two seconds. Right. And Ray Donovan can hire me and give me a nice juicy part, you know. So, I mean, there are still holdouts that won't do TV, that won't even do TV press. Right. But it doesn't matter to me. I just want to have a good time.
0: I want to work with
1: good people. I want to get paid. I (laughs) want to be able to do something I haven't done before. And those are my criteria, especially now that my kids are older. I don't have to go so much around the school year. And I still have to explain to them. I'm going to be doing something that's going to embarrass them. <laughs> I still, you know, I don't think right. I'll be taking my clothes off anytime soon.
0: <laughs> All right. So with our with our remaining few minutes here, let's just dive into Feud, if we may. It turns out, I guess I shouldn't say I was surprised, to learn because it makes sense, but you've been getting pitched the idea of doing something
1: about Betty Davis for years. For years. It started with Betty Davis herself contacting me when I was a kid. After her daughter's book came out, I think she was trying to find a way to tell her side of the story, but I didn't have the wherewithal to actually get a script developed. I said, of course, but you know, and then there were a few more projects, some of them film one play. And then Ryan came with this as a film years ago. And when I read it, it was just bitchy. You know, there wasn't, I couldn't figure out, it was like a one joke pony kind of thing. And I said to him, the only thing that really interests me is at the end when she says all this time we could have been friends. So cut two years later, he directed something, that, you know, they put different directors on to this movie. And I was like, yeah, sure, try to figure it out. <laughs> but then he came to me and said, okay, after he had figured out his cottage industry of these miniseries, he said, let's. Do it as a mini series. And I was like, How could that be interesting for eight episodes or 10 episodes? He said, No, no, no. It's going to be the context of Hollywood. Start with whatever happened to Baby Jane, but Mm -hmm. talk a bit about their past. Has it changed for women? And I'm going to have 50% of them directed by women. So then it started to get more interesting. I called Jess and I was like, She said, I, you know, all I can tell you is Jessica Jessica Lang. All I can tell you is that he's very enthusiastic about this so that's a good sign and so we she's and I said them a lot, yeah. yeah and I said listen to Ryan I'm terrified of taking her on she's just every cliche that you could have about her exists out there and she's so different than I am in the way she speaks I I would have to have someone to help me with the cadence and mm-hmm. the dialect and he said fine so that went down right <laughs> so, right and then I said I'm just really scared. I don't know. I don't, I, you know, we, I did, there's only two scripts. I don't know where it's going. Right. And he said, well, trust me, we won't start till you're ready and you have to trust me and I'm scared too. And for some reason that really seemed, I don't know why, but the fact that he said he was scared too made me feel better. But, and then I talked to Jessica and she said, look, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I love her. And so we jumped. And, so
0: had you two, A, known each other and B, once you're doing this, Is any part of you thinking, okay, so we're here's two best actress Oscar winners playing two best actress Oscar winners. It's going to be a tough thing. I mean, it's a long shoot to do 10 episodes. I don't know how long exactly it took you guys, but that's a big, way more
1: than we thought it. We started in September and didn't finish till mid February. Oh my God.
0: So So I mean, I hadn't
1: been in LA for ever that long.
0: Did it? (laughs) Right, right. So I guess, A, what was your history with her? And then B, what was your experience with her here? Because I know everybody's kind of been. Curious if there were, you know, could you two get along or would there, not could you two, but could two actresses playing two characters who hate each other in the way that these do, like, does that ever trickle into into the into real life. Does no,
1: no, no. The answer is no. I mean, it you know, every time you do some kind of a project, if you're opposite a guy, they say you're fucking him and if you're opposite <laughs> a woman, they say you're fighting them. So, that's just a cliche. Mm-hmm. We needed each other to be as professional as she is. She's an awesome, strong, smart Professional, funny gal, and we'd known each other through the years. We never worked together. We, we, we both are a little allergic to LA, so we had that in common. We, you know, had similar kind of guys in a way, similar kind of problems with those guys <laughs> in a way. And I always, you know, we were running into each other even before this happened. And she'd say, "Are you still on this? Are you still thinking <laughs> of it?" And we'd go, "Yeah." but we weren't hanging out you know and shopping and things we've we've since hung out yeah. and we we've certainly kept in touch but i needed her i needed somebody that was challenging and i needed somebody that would you know hold up her end of it and that brought things to the project and she was all of that and i think she did an amazing amazing job i haven't seen it but certainly in the work that we you did together no
0: do you not normally watch your work?
1: Well, unless I have some say over things, it's frustrating because they they cut scenes and they, you know.
0: But even I, when you hear how great the reception's that, been. I'm going to
1: dine out on yeah, that. You know, I don't want to see it. <laughs> when I see myself, I'm always seeing right. things I could have been braver with or done better or, you know, why are they using that take and not a different take? So I'm happy that everybody loved it and, I, and I'm happy that it started all this conversation. I think that, you know, the state of women in Hollywood, which is, I'm sure, one of your questions eventually. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're having these conversations is the most positive thing. I personally have worked with, like, five women directors in the last, like, almost all my films have been directed by women lately, and I'm about to go into a project with an Iranian woman director, so... Is I that, haven't. That's a
0: deliberate. I want to. No, champion it's these, just the way just that the way it's it been. The
1: Medler was a, a yeah. woman. You know, this one that I did with Alfano, Naomi was a woman. The oh, yeah. Marilyn Monroe thing was a woman. You know, I've just mm. so and I loved work, working with the women that I worked with. Helen Hunt was a huge surprise on this. She just was an amazing, fabulous director. I'd always admired her as a person Mm -hmm. and as an actor, but she was great. So, you know, I think that more and more women are able to greenlight projects and that as we recognize power in the hands of women, there's no need to write off other women. I think the generation before me was very guilty of targeting women and making sure that you're they don't get in there, but I don't see it. I've Maybe never come upon it. Maybe it
0: was the studio it. system, just the inherent competitiveness of that. Yeah, or...
1: and that the guy, it was the guys that were making right. decisions. So you wanted a clear um, playing field. You wanted to get rid of those all about Eve kind of things <laughs> happening. You know, but yeah. it's I have never come across it. And yeah. all the women that I admire, that I'm friends with, and even that I don't hang with, but that I know, yeah. are all incredibly supportive of other women.
0: Was there one aspect of the Betty Davis performance that you're proudest of, or a scene? I know you haven't seen it, but just knowing in the moment.
1: I was so terrified for the first five weeks. You know, I would be going home and listening to the next scene and doing, you know, just on it all the time. And the fun fear ratio was not in my favor. And I am somebody who really likes to have a good time to stay loose, to be playful when I'm working, even if it's Lorenzo's oil, even if it's dead man walking, you know, I, I'm not one of those people that goes to a dark place for the two months, you know? So the thing I'm most proud of is that eventually I did have fun. And eventually, you know, I started to feel a little bit looser about what was going on and what was happening. And so that that experience wasn't just about being terrified. You know, we would finish a scene and Jess and I would look at each other and say, Have we just done like a series of memes? That, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because to make those people live, especially right. Betty, because people were more familiar with her, I think, than Joan as a ex- yeah. exaggerated character to find a way to make her live in the moment for that audience, for this audience, not to just go, Oh yeah, that sounds like Betty Davis was so challenging. Yeah. And to bring people in and to try to make her as complicated as she was. And yeah. I didn't know until I started preparing, I hadn't seen all her interviews and, and, at festivals and on TV. And, and you know, then I really had more of an insight into her emotional life.
0: I thought you killed
1: it. It was great. Uh, uh,
0: so last things are just sort of what we call rapid fire. First thing that comes to your mind, if we can, uh, we talked before we went on the air about your one of your side gigs has been spin this yeah. ping pong club, which I've tried to go wherever I'm in a city where it is. I, I think it's great. But maybe you can just brief well, us on we the Well, we
1: started a number of years ago, and I was more of a propagandist then. <laughs> and it was a community, this community, and a lot of outreach into cities. And it became, it's a really good idea. But now Spin, for me, has kind of spun into a different direction. And they're making a lot of money, but it's not quite aesthetically or community-wise what i had hoped. You know, in New York, we had... I don't know, 60 some schools that became, had it as a scholastic wow. sport, and, you know, in San Francisco. Anyway, it's turned into, you know, a different more like a Dave & Buster's, I think, one of the San Francisco <laughs> Reviews said. So I'm kind of pulling away from right. that, from it being my club. Now they certainly don't need me to be successful, and it's it's it's. so I'm no longer associated with SPIN. But Stiga was very generous and gave me ping-pong tables to take to Berlin, to the permanent refugee centers there. After I had been to Lesbos, I kind of followed up that year. And then this year, I went back again to Berlin from Ken, and, I s- and to see how they were doing. And they've been really, really generous. And so I'm very happy with with That's that. That's
0: great. Number two of three is about politics, which mm-hmm. has been a theme throughout your whole life. And just won't harp on this, but I've got to ask you, I, it, you became a lightning rod, I guess, in the last few months, or it's almost a year now with our new president and leading up to that. And I just wonder you've never been shy about being outspoken about your political views or whatever, but has the backlash or whatever that's come with with this particular round of it been tough?
1: Yes, it has been tough. I mean, it it certainly is empowering to think that I alone against (laughs) all of Hollywood was responsible for Hillary's defeat. That has been pretty unbelievable. But I'm focusing now on, you know, We've always had Goldman Sachs in our government. We've, all those pipelines for fracking were laid during Obama. Obama deported more people. I, I mean, I was very happy that Obama was president, but he also rounded up the most whistleblowers. I mean, our government has not been perfect. And now this guy is such a bozo that everybody's noticing what's been going on. And it's a dangerous way to motivate people. But there's such an outpouring now, especially in terms of this healthcare problem and we have a chance for single payer. And we're finding out which Democrats have been voting as Republicans. And the veil has been lifted on all of the connections between oil and gas and Big Farm and the insurance agencies. When you look at the people that we thought were our allies and how they've been voting, when you look at the press that didn't go to Standing Rock, you understand what kind of news sources we're getting from our mainstream media. So you've got the Young Turks and Unicorn Riot and Democracy Now and all of these people that are now people are listening to because they're not connected to to corporate news. So there's been a shift and more people that never had thought they had to speak up are speaking up and and I think that the millennials who are going to inherit this mess, whose water is going to be damaged, who won't have internet neutrality, and all these other issues that we're not paying attention to while we're worrying about his tweets and Russia. All of the stuff that's coming down, Dodd-Frank, you know, people are now having to really fight, and they are. And so I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about the fact that there's been a resurgent of town hall meetings like we haven't seen since the 60s that p- kids, millennials are really involved and they're involved in a different way.
0: But in the most genuinely non-judgmental way, I just want to ask, when you see like last week with North Korea, we're on the brink of whatever, a nuclear war because of a tweet, when we have Nazis in Virginia, when we may, he may have colluded with Russia. Does any Part of you, because I know part. I think no.
1: I don't know some people. No, <laughs> let,
0: no, no, Do I regret? Not regret, not regret. But I mean, where the where the decision essentially? I think because I don't know. Not I'm not sure that people blame you single handedly for Hillary. But what they're frustrated was that it was the idea that they might be comparably bad, or that rather get behind Jill Stein than Hillary when it was clearly at that point between the two of them. Yeah.
1: Well, you know how much Jill Stein got. That didn't have anything it to do didn't. with that. They didn't, and I vote in New York. The point is. First of all, the Democratic Party is a nightmare. The establishment Democratic Party is a nightmare and they're still not learning and they're gonna end up with the same situation. And honestly, we would be at war in Syria. Under Obama, we were bombing seven countries. We would still be fracking. She sold fracking all over the world. I mean, there are lawsuits all over. In Brooklyn, 127,000 people went to the polls and had their names off. There was so much fraud in the primary that the mainstream media isn't talking about. So there was a lot wrong, and and it certainly, would it, be, would it be as much of a buffoonery? No, but we'd still be in bed with Saudi Arabia. We'd still be in Yemen. We would still be doing all of these things. We would still be fracking. We would still be deporting. So how do we know? You know, I, in a way the Nazis didn't just spring out because of, I mean, he's made it seem normal, but they've been there. And what we have to do is look at what happened to this country that we lost more than a thousand, you know, the governors, the mayors, Uh, not just the White House, not just the Congress, not just the Senate. So how did that happen? That didn't happen because of Bernie Sanders. That was already in place, right? Who's been pushing to get health care single payer? Bernie, who got all of these people to run for office? Bernie, who has been giving people hope? It's been Bernie. Where have where so you have want the him Democrats? In 2020? Been? Absolutely. Yeah. If he wants to run, I'm behind him. And but all of these Tulsi Gabbard, fabulous woman. Nina Turner. First of all, you you really have to look at. You know, somebody said to me, well. You mean you don't trust the CIA? No, I don't trust the <laughs> CIA. Our history Google Noam Chomsky and look at what he has to say about our involvement in other elections, violent involvement in other elections, including Russia. Yeah. There's no proof that Russia didn't hack the election. Did they release emails, which now this investigative has said were leaked? You know, they weren't hacking voting machines. We should pay attention to the Electoral College. We should pay attention to superdelegates, all of whom were lobbyists. If you want change, what we have to do is get money out of government. And what we're seeing now is where that money is. We're seeing the Democrats who vote against lowering pharmaceutical prices. You know, we got to primary these people out. That's what's wrong. And they would have still been there and this would have happened. No, maybe what's, you know, they've just been this article out about how the neo-Nazis have been infiltrating the police and sheriff's departments. My brother wrote an article about that 20 years ago. This is what we have to stop. This is what we have to be aware of. But the neo-Nazis have been there. This country was founded on racism. You know this isn't something new that's just come up and we have to fight it and we have to stick together and we have to unite but we don't have to unite with Nazis <laughs> you know this is yeah, not what they crazy. mean by uniting and the Democratic Party has to deal with things that really count Bernie after the primary went to more states than she did he did his part you know and the states that Trump won She's he definitely won.
0: not Faultless, that's for sure. But a final, back because back you're to the important stuff here, Susan Sarandon. <laughs> the last question is this. You said in another interview, quote, I've done everything wrong, so there's really no explanation as to why I'm still around. I work with a lot of new directors. Half the time, they're not great, but you never know until you try. I've taken movies that people told me I shouldn't. I've taken years off to have children. I've been outspoken politically, and here I am, close quote. So as the final thing here. How do you explain it? What's the, what, how have you withstood all of these things that you weren't supposed to do? And, I and have here we no
1: <laughs> idea. Yeah. I've been very lucky. I live my life every yeah. day in gratitude. And that's one of the reasons I think I am involved with so many voiceless people is that I realize that for some reason I'm still here and I have no <laughs> idea how that has managed through all these different trends and Great. changes and everything. And I, I don't know. Well, you've done a very generous thing by, you know, having a fairly positive view on my oh, long career. Terrificer. So I appreciate that. But no. I, I, I honestly don't, I don't know.
0: Well, keep it up. I'm then. grateful though. Thank you. I'm Thank grateful you. to you. Appreciate it.